Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. Since the October 7th terror attack on Israel by Hamas, it has become increasingly difficult for Jewish students to feel safe on American college campuses. AJC's State of Anti-Semitism in America 2023 report found that 24% of current or recent college students say they felt uncomfortable or unsafe at a campus event because they're Jewish. This is even true at one of the world's top Ivy League schools. Some might even say especially true at Harvard University. This week, the co-chair of a task force set up by Harvard to combat anti-Semitism resigned, the second such departure after Rabbi David Wolpe resigned from an anti-Semitism advisory committee. He cited former Harvard President Claudine Gay's congressional testimony and events on campus, which reinforced the idea that he could not make the sort of difference he had hoped. The latest event on campus? A blatantly anti-Semitic cartoon circulated on Instagram by pro-Palestinian student groups. Here to give us some perspective on the ground are Harvard Divinity student Shabbos Kestenbaum and head of the Harvard Kennedy School Jewish Caucus, Nitzan Machlis. Shabbos, Nitzan, welcome to People of the Pod. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. So as I mentioned, on Sunday, Professor Rafaela Sadun resigned from her role on a university task force to combat anti-Semitism. Any idea why? Sure. So when President Garber put out that announcement, it was definitely a surprise to many of us. The official reason was she wanted to focus on her administrative and academic responsibilities as a professor at the business school. But we know that that's not true. (laughs) The very next day, the Harvard Crimson wrote an article detailing from members on the anti-Semitism task force that she was incredibly frustrated with the slow pace, with the bureaucracy. And more fundamentally, she had asked Harvard to commit themselves to actually applying the recommendations that the task force would issue. And Harvard was not willing to do that. And I think that speaks volumes, again, about their priorities and how serious they are about combating anti-Semitism, that they wouldn't even commit themselves to listening to the advice of people that they themselves appointed. So what are some of those basic obvious objectives that you think the task force, I mean, what are your expectations for this task force? Well, my expectations for the task force is nothing. I mean, the first one was so remarkably useless. It was disbanded after, what, 40 days? And this one, I'll give it, let's say, 100 days tops. But in terms of what I would want to see and what Jewish students have been asking for for years is, I'll give you an example. When all incoming students come into Harvard, they take mandatory Title IX training. And it tells them that things like fat phobia, like sizeism, like the wrong gender pronouns are forms of abuse, and they can be disciplinary if someone were to engage in them. Why is anti-Semitism not included in that type of mandatory training? And why is it that we need the largest massacre of Jews since the Holocaust for Harvard to wake up to that reality? So that's number one. Number two, we need to see the fair enforcement of the school code of conduct and the fair enforcement of school policies. If you're a student engaged in anti-Semitism, the way that many of them are at the moment, you will be disciplined in the same way you would be, and you have been, because Harvard has a track record of doing this, if you were engaged in racism or sexism or homophobia. But why the double standard when it comes to Jews? And then more fundamentally, we need to really restructure and reconsider 
DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives on campus that have never included Jewish people, not once. These are just three basic recommendations off the top of my head that we've been saying for so, so long. It seems like students and faculty are simply oblivious to just how vulnerable Jewish students are feeling. Case in point, the cartoon last week showing a hand marked with a Star of David and a dollar sign holding nooses around the necks of a Black man and an Arab. Can you share with our listeners what kinds of explanations, apologies, or consequences that you've heard about associated with that cartoon? That cartoon was really upsetting on a personal level. I'll share maybe in tune with the general theme here that I personally have never felt threatened on campus. I have friends who have had very bad experiences And I think anti-Semitism at an institutional level definitely exists. But I think that cartoon for me was the first time that I really felt like, wow, this is very upsetting and this is something that could hurt me. I haven't had conversations with students about the cartoon. And I was actually surprised how many students were unaware that that cartoon had, in fact, been circulating. And many times I found that in conversations I'll have with friends, they will be very upset, but they didn't even know it was happening. So I will hear about this first from my Israeli circles or from my Jewish circles. But many students are really unaware the extent these images are circulating on campus. So I don't know if that directly answers the question of reactions. But for me, there's been this big question of how do people not know this is happening? And how can I be so upset for several days over this and my classmates are not even aware? Shabbos, you... As you were saying, you were you're one of six students who has sued the university for not adequately protecting Jewish students. In fact, you personally encountered anti-Semitism. Can you share that experience with our listeners? Sure. So unfortunately, I haven't just encountered it on a one-off, but it's been pervasive and it's been consistent. But one particular example that stands out was the very first day of the spring semester here at Harvard. I was walking through Harvard Yard and I noticed that every single poster that called attention to kidnap Jewish babies was vandalized, and not just vandalized, but with horrific, horrific anti-Semitism, saying that Jews are best friends with Jeffrey Epstein, that they're responsible for 9-11. And in fact, on Kfir Bibas, who's the one-year-old Jewish child, uh, someone had written, his head is still on, where's the evidence? So I, of course, reported that immediately. No action was taken. It was only after CNN and Fox News had covered the story did Harvard retroactively issue a statement. But anyways, the next morning, I get an unprompted, unsolicited email from a current Harvard employee who asked me to meet him in a secluded underpass to debate whether Jews were involved in 9-11. I, of course, reported that. And then later that night, he posted a video on his social media waving a machete with a picture of my face saying that he wants to fight and he has some master plan. And as I said, I reported all of this. I went through all the proper channels, whether it was DEI, whether it was the police, whether it was the Office of Student Life. To this day, February 27th, he is still employed at Harvard. In fact, a friend of mine told me he saw him walking through Harvard Yard just a couple of days ago. It is inconceivable that any other minority group would be treated the way that Harvard treats its Jewish student body. And that's what makes this lawsuit, unfortunately, so necessary. That sounds absolutely horrifying and terrifying for you. I'm so sorry that you're having to deal with that. And that's on social media. Have you also encountered people on campus? Have you had personal encounters as well? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I'll just tell you the most recent incident that happened. There is a forum for Harvard students, specifically Harvard Divinity School students, 
And it's really just become a form in the last couple of months to bash the Jewish state. It's genocidal, it's apartheid. And someone had posted a couple of days ago that they were going to organize an event demanding lawmakers pass a ceasefire resolution. So I responded, and this is the first time I was really involved in this forum for months, I responded saying, wouldn't it make more sense to ask Hamas to release all the Jewish babies that they kidnapped and to surrender to end the war? And I was kicked out of the forum. So there was not space for mainstream Jewish viewpoints, unless that Jewish viewpoint is anti-Zionist. Harvard does not value freedom of speech, the free exchange of ideas or intellectual discourse. What it values is a one narrative, one ideology. And the moment you are counter to that, you are ostracized, you are bullied, and you are isolated. Nitzan, have you encountered the same resistance to your point of view? I mean, have you been reluctant to share that you're Jewish or Israeli? I have felt for the first time uncomfortable with how I share my identity. And whenever I speak in class, either on Israel or on my Jewish identity, I think twice about it. And I have friends who have had very difficult experiences in classrooms and have really been caught off guard. That constant feeling that you have to be on guard because you don't know what will be said and how you will reply to it is very exhausting. But again, what I want to emphasize here is that this isn't the case for everyone on a personal level. I haven't felt unsafe on a day-to-day basis, and I have had overwhelmingly positive experience with my peers in the classroom. At the same time, there's a lot of very upsetting behavior that's happening, like the cartoon we just discussed. But the reason I think it's important to also discuss these stories is because I think that that feeling of isolation can be very dangerous. So we need to separate fighting against all the awful things that are happening, but also listening to students who have had positive experience with their peers who have stepped forward and supported them in this time. I think both from an Israeli and a Jewish perspective, the worst thing that can happen is for us to feel completely isolated from our surroundings. Nitzan, you are not part of this lawsuit. You have not been targeted in the same way. How are you trying to make a difference and change the climate there? I'll say that my approach has been to, first of all, work with administration, and I very much believe in this. I think there is value to challenging the institution from the outside, especially when they have disappointed us on so many levels. But as the chair of the Jewish caucus in Harvard Kennedy School, we have tried with the other co-chairs to work together with administration and specifically with the DEI offices. For me, this is one of the most important asks to have DEI offices in Harvard and in other campuses understand that religious identities and national identities are part of any policy of inclusivity. And personally, I've seen results here. I think there is a greater understanding that these offices should cater to the needs of Jewish students. And I think this is institutionally one of the most important places that we can make things better for students in the long term and shift the mindset of how administration deals with different identities within the school. But this really requires an approach of being willing to work together with administration, even when they have disappointed us, to make the meetings, to speak to the deans and to come with lists of of demands from our students. You mentioned working with university officials and leaders who run the DEI programs there on campus. And I know that there has also been a task force formed to address anti-Muslim and anti-Arab bias. And both that group and the anti-Semitism task force are being advised by the university's chief diversity and inclusion officer. Until now, have the DEI efforts adequately included Jewish students, or let me just say, have they addressed Jewish students' needs at all? So pre-October 7th, not at all, at all. And I found that really shocking, even from having orientation presentations where we speak about all the different identities in school and no religious identities 
would be there. And I think that we had a similar issue with Muslim students in the school who also felt like their religious identity is not something they felt comfortable talking about or expressing or asking for accommodations. And in that sense, I think we should be building bridges with these kind of student groups and working together because this is a dual issue. So we definitely did not see any of that pre-October 7th. And a lot of our work with the DEI deans has been making them aware that this is part of their toolkit and part of what they should be working on on campus. And some of it is really basic stuff, like celebrating Jewish holidays when we're celebrating different holidays. So giving that a space on campus, having people know that a lot of the student population are celebrating a holiday right now, building courses around anti-Semitism, talking about anti-Semitism and racism classes, clarifying who we can report anti-Semitism to on campus. So these are small milestones, but I think what's important here is the mindset change and understanding that if we want to talk about being inclusive, then we should be talking about religious identities too. Shabbos, there's the strategy of working from within, and there's this strategy of putting pressure from the outside. Do you feel like you kind of maximized, used up any energy you had to try to work from within, or is that, in your experience, just not a successful strategy? And how did you decide to put the pressure on from the outside in the form of this lawsuit? My mindset from day one was, let's work with the administration. Let's work from the inside. And in fact, when I was working with my legal team to draft this lawsuit, which took about three months, I was quite emphatic and quite clear that should things change, I would be willing to drop the lawsuit in a heartbeat. You know, I I don't want to do this and I don't want to go to D.C. um, And I don't want to uh, appear on different conferences telling strangers how bad anti-Semitism is at Harvard. I want to learn. That's why I came to Harvard. But much like they say about Palestinian leadership, they never miss an opportunity, miss an opportunity. The Harvard faculty, the Harvard administration are the exact same way. They failed time and time again. Not only did they fail, but they made the situation untenable. They made the situation so much worse. So my attitude in the past month or so has been, these things are not amenable. We cannot change it. We have to dismantle it. We have to put pressure, outside pressure. What are some of the mistakes that you're seeing in this battle to confront anti-Semitism? The whole conversation on anti-Zionism being critical of Israel and anti-Semitism is a very, very, very complicated conversation. There are no easy answers. I wish I had easy answers. And we should be having a complicated conversation about it. We should not be having an easy answer to every single case of criticizing Israel as necessarily anti-Semitic. And when we do that, unfortunately, people take us less seriously. Again, it's a very complicated conversation. And I think very much of anti-Semitism is tied to anti-Zionism and these things are not separate at all. I think we need to be very careful with how we fight anti-Semitism on campuses. And I think the listeners of this podcast will hopefully be willing to understand that climate is very, very, very complicated. I'm very critical of Israel's policies. I was involved in a lot of political activism work. I'm also a Zionist and I'm a proud Israeli and I will return to Israel to work within the Israeli political system. Have you taken precautions to stay safe? Have you changed any of your behavior? Yeah, so, you know, going back to this example of the current Harvard employee who taunted me with a machete, I had private armed security outside my house for three days. I had armed security follow me to a synagogue on Friday night. You know, my parents are always calling and checking in on me. They very much want me to leave Cambridge and to come back home. And in the lawsuit, we also talk about how there was one instance at Widener Library, which is really the heart and soul of Harvard University, where during finals week of the fall semester, 
there were hundreds of students chanting globalize the intifada palestine will be arab from the river to the sea and wider libraries is where i like to go it's where i'm entitled to go as a harvard student and i of course made sure not to not even go into wider library but to change my regular route so i wouldn't even have to walk across these people because we already know as we saw in the week after October 7th these protests can get violent and they do get violent you know there was an incidence of a physical altercation at the business school so what has harvard done about it the answer is nothing i'm just curious if your sense is that this climate already existed on campus and october 7th just intensified it or are we just now paying attention to something that has long been there that's a great question my first semester as a Harvard student, actually my first month, the Palestine Solidarity Committee invited Muhammad al-Kurd to speak. This was his second time coming to campus. This is someone who said that Jews eat the organs of Palestinians. This is someone who says that the Israeli occupying forces have adopted the ways of Nazi Germany. And this is also someone that literally last night lamented on Twitter that it's such a shame that we can't hijack planes to pursue our cause. I mean, calling him a terrorist sympathizer puts it mildly. Harvard has a strong track record, rightly or wrongly, but a strong track record of regulating speech that they find to be harmful to students. And they have a track record of rescinding invitations and even acceptances to students and to speakers in the name of promoting peace and safety for its students. The obvious and only exception is when it comes to Jews. We went to the administration. We said, this is someone who supports violence against Jewish people in the name of Palestinian resistance. And the answers we got were shrugs on the shoulder and, well, there's nothing we can do about it. The hypocrisy and the double standard is so breathtaking, is so hurtful, is so demeaning. This was my first month at Harvard. So to say that this suddenly appeared out of nowhere really does not encapsulate the pervasive problem of anti-Semitism at Harvard. And it also encapsulates how Harvard has enabled and in some cases promoted this type of discourse and behavior amongst its students and faculty. Nitsan, you are a graduate student at Harvard's Kennedy School of Public Policy and Government. Your classmates are learning how to navigate the complexities of policy negotiations and international diplomacy. Do the conversations there tend to be elevated compared to the general campus discourse? I think this is exactly the vacuum that I've been feeling on campus. It took a very long time to be having serious policy conversations about this topic, and this is at the top policy school in the world. So if we're not having policy conversations on a foreign policy issue, the war in Israel and Gaza, then the people who are going to enter that vacuum are going to be bad actors and they're going to be extremist activists sometimes. And their voices will be heard to a disproportional extent. Now, I'm not saying these conversations aren't happening at all because eventually people stepped up and some of my more impressive professors were brave enough to step up into that space. But they've been lone actors in a system that as a whole has not led discourse of this kind. In other words, they're lone actors. There's not a community. There's not a critical mass that is following in their footsteps. There really are just lone voices. As students, we've had to push for this. And I think it isn't my role as a student to be asking a policy school to teach me policy. You're not just Jewish, you're also Israeli. Does that help or hinder your role and your ability to carry on these conversations? I mean, you you just said you're very critical of Israeli policies. To me, I would think that would help in fostering conversations and teaching people that These are policy conversations. It's a very difficult point. And I think in many times my Israeli identity goes before me 
and colors anything I say, no matter what my thoughts are on the government, no matter what my thoughts are on Israeli politics. And that's very upsetting. And that's something that many Israeli students have felt on campus. I also think that we're learning how to have these conversations and we're learning how to be strategic about the people we speak to and the way we raise awareness. I do my best not to give attention to the extreme people, but to work with moderates. And I think most students at the end of the day are a silent majority who either are unaware of anti-Semitism happening on campus or are scared to speak up. And working with them can be much more effective, in my opinion, than working with people who are shouting the loudest on the edges of the spectrum. And I can speak for the Israeli community at the Harvard Kennedy School, but that's something we have worked on together as a community. How do we target the majority and not the people who are making us most upset and who get to the headlines, who are speaking on the margins of the campus discourse? Being from Israel, I imagine it was incredibly difficult to watch abroad what was happening in your home country. Do you have family or friends who were directly affected on October 7th? My brother had just finished his military service. He's an officer. Um, He had actually come to the States for a visit and to travel after his service a week before October 7th. And he got on a plane on October 8th and had been in Gaza for around three months since. And this is actually a crazy story. But in one of the only times that he left Gaza during that time, he called me up and he said, Nitsan, what's happening in Harvard? And I found that shocking that someone who was actually at the front lines and actually in a war and actually endangering their own life was asking me what's happening on a campus on the other side of the world. It's crazy. It really is. It speaks to the effect, the the emotional impact on the Jewish community at large around the world, what's happening at such a major college campus. I'm also curious what the reaction on campus has been to you having a brother who's serving on the front lines That's a good question. And to be honest, that's something I don't feel comfortable sharing with most people in the school. And that's a problem. There are people who know and there are people who have been very supportive, but there are many people who I've been concerned, what will they think of me? What will they think of my family? And it's a very difficult environment to navigate. Oh, I'm sure it is. That would be taxing for any college student whose family is fighting in a war anywhere in the world, not just with this added element. Nitsan, I will certainly keep your family in my prayers. Shabbos, Nitsan, thank you both for sharing your difficult but different experiences on Harvard's campus. Thank you. Thank you for having me. If you missed last week's episode, be sure to tune in for my conversation with Julie Fishman-Raymond, AJC's Managing Director of Policy and Political Affairs, on the efforts in Congress to stand in solidarity with Israeli victims of Hamas's sexual violence and what you can do to make sure the plight of Israeli women is heard. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod. 